Just to make sure everybody noticed when we were talking before, if you uh, arrived when we were doing announcements, next week we won't be here, alright, so if you, we'll have signs up and stuff, but we're going to be meeting at Adair County Village, having some outside church and uh, having a good time. We're starting at 11 a.m., and uh, we'll start with a little short church service that we'll actually do. We play some music out there in the park and uh, scare away all the wildlife. And then, uh, and then we can run around and have some fun. So, uh, but we'll have hot dogs and hamburgers and drinks and chips and cookies and sodas and all that kind of good stuff next week. But um, it should be a good time. But don't show up here. Uh, we'll be out in the shade uh, next week. So um, if you have a Bible, we're in uh, Matthew chapter 10. Uh, and... Uh, w- We'll get there in just a second, but if you have your app, it takes a while to open in here. The, um, when you ask most people, right, uh, what happens like after they die, uh, most people are going to heaven if given the choice, right? Like, what are, where you go, like when you go to a funeral, for the most heathen, atheistic, pagan person, they're like, I know he's looking down on us right now. You know, which is inferring he's up, and up would be heaven, and down would be hell, right? Like, so, when you die, apparently you move upwards if people liked you, and you never go to a funeral and people talk about he's looking up at us right now through the flames, you know, and uh, we don't, you know, maybe you've been to that funeral, then you have a good story, but uh, you don't hear that, and most people, when you talk to them, uh, they assume if they believe in anything close to an afterlife or believe the possibility of an afterlife exists, uh, they're going to heaven. That's the direction that people assume. And, and so there's, it's not like, um, it's, for most people, it's not like this strange thought that people get something good in the afterlife. Because there is this kind of just, I'm a good guy, I've weighed out, or a good lady, my I'm more good than bad here, and when we get to the end, it'll be judged, and the judgment will be, oh, you passed by a bit, there you go. You know, and the understanding, though, that Jesus gives in Scripture is quite stark in comparison uh, to an everybody, everybody, it turns out, don't worry about it, everybody goes to heaven. And especially over the last, if you've been here for the last month or so, Jesus has been on a bit of a downer. Uh, a bit of a, like, okay, we've done some miracles, we've done some teaching, we've healed some people, we've raised some people from the dead, that's all fun, but listen, and now we're going we're gonna to go Old Testament for a little bit and, and talk to you about some things uh, that are a bit serious. And that's kind of, this week it kind of culminates, uh, and uh, it kind of, this is in Matthew chapter 11, I'm sorry I said 10 before, it kind of culminates and kind of grows into this thing where you're like, um, well, let me say this. Most preachers skip this section. <laughs> All right? You package it together with the next section because Jesus apparently has something to eat and gets into a bit of a better mood. Um, and, uh, but we're going to sit in this and read it. And, uh, and I think that if Jesus said it, you know, maybe there was a reason. And as we look at it, we might be able to see some things. So chapter 11, verse 20 will be on the screen if you don't have it. Um, and anything that begins with, Jesus denouncing the cities, you know this is going to be a good time. Um, so that he is Jesus, and he just finished talking about uh, John the Baptist and how great he is. 
Um, but this generation on earth around Jesus, that was on earth at the time of Jesus, uh, isn't believing in Jesus. They want Jesus to be what they expect, and they're not accepting Jesus for who he says he is. And then he says this, Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you there will be more sorry, but I tell you that it will be more t- tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. So there's a lot of kind of Bible words in there that we'll talk through if you read that and you went, I don't know what he's talking about, don't worry. When Jesus is starting to denounce the cities and the woe, that word woe, it's kind of like they're saying, uh, like, it's like an oh snap, right? But it's a preemptive oh snap. Like, this is going to be terrible, terrible news for you. I'm about to tell you something uh, that, that you're going to hate to hear. A woe to you, Chorazan. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Uh, those cities, Chorazan and Bethsaida, uh, were Jewish villages. Uh, there are places around where Jesus would have hung out. They're where those two, and Capernaum, where, were where the majority of Jesus' ministry was going on. And Jesus actually refers to these Jewish cities, the Jewish cities who knew the Old Testament, who would have been looking for a Messiah. And when he appeared there and did mighty works in their community, and they some accepted, but there was this undercurrent of rejection that was going on, Uh, accepting Jesus' message, they don't repent. And Jesus says, but if I went to Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. The sackcloth and ashes, so you know. You know how we would wear dark clothes to a funeral? Uh, When they were mourning, they would wear sackcloth, which would be like a rough clothing, and, uh, and they would put ashes on their head as a sign of mourning. If somebody had ashes on their head, they were mourning or they were repentant. They were changing their life and, and sorrowful for the way their life was. Um, just traditions and customs and the way that things worked. And Jesus says, if I went to Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. Now, here's why that's an insult. Tyre and Sidon are Gentile cities out on the Mediterranean Sea. They're coastal port cities full of sailors and the kinds of things that sailors like to do. All right? These aren't the kind of cities that um, you want to raise your young family in. Uh, they're outside of the Jewish religion. They would be unclean people. They would not have known about Yahweh God or the expectancy of a Messiah. And Jesus says, I went to you who've been told the Messiah is coming. I went to you who know that you're supposed to be looking for this. But if I would have went to these unclean, Gentile outsiders who you won't even talk to, if I would have went to them and did the things and said the things that I did with you, they would have repented. It would have been a citywide demonstration with sackcloth, people putting ashes on their head. It would have been incredible. Jesus is saying that when he shows up, the religious establishment rejects him 
But if he would have went to the outcasts, the outsiders, those who were unclean, they would have received him. It would have been amazing. Jesus then says, It will be more bearable in the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Uh, We'll get back to that in one second. And you, Capernaum, and this is Jesus' hometown. So if Jesus grew up in Albany, he would say, And you, Albany. All right, like this is, he's talking to his own teachers, his own mailman, the people in his community, all right? And he throws out this really fun statement. He says, will you be exalted to heaven? And this is a saying in their culture. It's taken from Isaiah 14 when uh, Isaiah is condemning some people and saying, oh, you think you're going up to heaven? Nope, you're going to hell, all right? And, uh, and, and this is, you can ask people, are you going to heaven? They say yes. Jesus would go, oh, you think you're going to heaven? Nope, you're going to hell. He was good at starting conversations. Uh, so he says, and Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? And then he actually says this, this whole city, you will be brought down to Hades. Like Jesus just said, your whole town is going to hell. That doesn't mean every single person. He, Jesus can speak in generalizations just like everybody does when you say everybody was there. When he brought, uh, sorry, for if the mighty works had been done and you had been done in Sodom, Sodom would have remained to this day. So Jesus says, you think you're awesome, you're going to heaven. Actually, you're all going to hell. And it's going to get worse. Because the city of Sodom, and you, you, you know we get the word like a sodomy or a sodomite. Um, and you hear things like Sodom and Gomorrah. If you grew up in Sunday school, if you were misbehaving, this is the lesson that your teacher went to. All right, um, Because the city of, of Sodom had so much evil in it, had so much inhospitality, so much, just, just they were inventing new ways of evil in this city. And, and it ended up getting to the point, and it's this weird story, where God actually rains fire onto that city and destroys it. It's a little bit uncomfortable because you're like, that seems a little bit harsh, doesn't it? But Jesus is saying, or God said, apparently this city was so bad and so unrepentant and so far gone that the best solution for the city was to like bomb it from heaven. And Jesus says, hey Capernaum, if I had done these things in Sodom, the city that we had to bomb with fireballs because it was unrepentant, they would have repented. But you, you who are so awesome, you apparently don't need this message. You apparently aren't receiving the message of Jesus. Sodom would still be here today if Jesus had grown up in that city. They would have been amazed at the work of God. They would have repented. They would have turned and followed. It says, But I tell you it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Sodom than for you. This is kind of harsh. Jesus would say this. His PR team would be like, You know, donations are going to go down. Attendance next week is not going to be so good, Jesus. This is, Jesus is just, all, it's like a, we've seen a turn. Like Jesus was saying all this stuff, like we're going to make you clean, we're going to bring healing, we're going to, this is going to be great, this is the Messiah. And he's faced this resistance 
from the religious institution and the religious power authority and he's just decided to push back and actually condemn the institution, condemn the authority and condemn the power because it's resisting the very work of God. To the point where Jesus is saying Gentile cities are better than these cities. Cities that were so evil that God had to firebomb them. And listen, God hasn't firebombed Las Vegas yet. Which means Sodom was worse. Alright? It is like, it was as evil as you can imagine. And Jesus says, on the day of judgment it will be easier for them than for you. And this doesn't mean that they'll, they'll go to heaven and you'll go to hell. It means people will receive what they're due. And the religious power institution is going to be surprised at what they're due. Because they're actually resisting the very work of God. Resisting the Messiah, the very one that Jesus or that God had promised, and, he, and this is who's coming. Sodom will have a better day. Tyre and Sidon will have a better day. And Tyre and Sidon, so you know, they aren't just random cities. If you read, listen, Isaiah, Ezekiel, I had to write this down. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, Zechariah, and Jeremiah, all Old Testament prophets, all condemned Tyre and said, God is going to destroy you because you're such a terrible city. You're so pompous and arrogant that it's kind of fun because they're a coastal city and God says, we're actually going to surround you in water and sink you. This is what's going to go down because you're so arrogant against Yahweh God. And they worshipped Baal, a B-A-A-L, uh, which would be, a, the, it would be the main false god from that era and the non-Roman, main non-Roman false god. Just incredible evil happening in these cities. If you can imagine Jesus going to the Bible Belt and saying, listen, you guys aren't getting it. If I had gone to the Pacific Northwest... <laughs> they would have repented. If I had gone to the liberal northeast, they would have repented. Right? And we like that example because we're not in the Bible Belt. But imagine if God comes to America, the Christian nation, and says, for what I've done in your country, for what I've done for you, if I had done that in Cuba, if I had done that in Iran, if I had done that in pagan liberal Canada, right? <laughs> See, it, the, the whole story is dependent on where you put yourself in the city. Like what's, sorry, where you put yourself in the story. Like what city you live in. Do you live in Capernaum, Bethsaida? Or do you live in Tyre, Sidon? And how do you see yourself and then how does God see what's going on in your city? Because if you live, if you were from Tyre and Sidon and you were vacationing where Jesus was speaking, this was great news. You were like, oh, okay, this guy hates this place, but for some reason he's going to do something good for us? All right. So if you consider yourself living in the lost places or living outside of the graces of God, when God brings you favor, that's great news. But if you consider yourself in, as far as Christianity goes, then this, or as far as 
uh, territorial Christianity goes. That's not a word, but I'm going to make that. Um, as far as being a Christian nation and stuff like that. Then this is terrible news. Because we're doing the right things. We're just being very careful. We're not going to believe every guy that comes by and raises the dead and makes the blind see and preaches good news to the poor and meets all six of the criteria of the prophet Isaiah. We're just not going to receive everyone who does that. When God does this amazing work in their communities and they go, that's nice, but we know your mom and dad and we need a Messiah that's going to overthrow the Roman government and so we're not going to accept you as our Messiah. For God, when he's talking about judgment in this situation, he's saying it'll actually be better for the people who lived like hell than the people who are trying to control heaven. It'll be better on the day of judgment, more tolerable on the day of judgment for the people who are getting what they know they deserve than for the people who are surprised in their in getting what they didn't think they deserved. It's, it's all about, when you read this story, where do you put yourself? In the Pacific Northwest, uh, it's really easy to put ourselves in that we live in the lost area, right? We do. Uh, Benton County, in 2003, there was a study done that uh, I believe is the Gallup organization that said, this is 10 years ago now, but they were the least church county in the whole United States. Uh, it's just and we're in Benton County and we started a church that's kind of why uh, we figured there were lots of non-Christians and that makes sense um, there is this kind of um, a, an antagonistic stance that our culture has towards Christianity or towards the church in general and when I say least church that doesn't mean like Christians only that means churches so that includes like the, the Mormons and the Jehovah Witnesses and everything. All right? The whole church league, softball, <laughs> all of it. Uh, we are dominating, by the way. <laughs> Theologically. So. But there is this... Um, uh, we live in, in an area sociologists call the nun zone. The percentage of people who choose none for their religion in this region. From here to Reading... Uh, is Redding, California, the percentage of people who choose none for their religion is double what the national average is. Uh, just none. Like, what's your religion? I don't have a, like, I don't, there is none. And so we live among a people who aren't feigning some kind of religiosity. Yet, as a people who live among this lost area, we if you're a follower of Jesus, the Bible would say you're found. Right? If you're a follower of Jesus, if you claim the name Christ or call yourself a Christian, even though that word might have some baggage in your culture, then you would consider yourself, I'm working on behalf of God. I'm bringing redemption to this area. I'm bearing witness. I'm a light in a very dark place. So God must be pretty impressed. And so we put ourselves in these places and that affects our attitude towards what God is doing. And then our attitude reveals itself in our posture towards the world around us. And our posture towards what God is doing around us. Like what happens if 
Jesus actually pulls a miracle in your life. Like what happens if Jesus actually speaks to you? Maybe through his word or through a sermon or maybe it's an actual audible voice. What do you do with that? What you do with God's interaction with you actually reveals the posture that you're taking towards God which is affected by the way you view the world around you. Because we live in a lost area, there's a temptation for people to build uh, defensive walls, right? If you've seen World War Z, this is why the, Jew, the city... Have you seen that yet? It's a Brad Pitt movie. You should have. Um, I think that's in the Bible. We haven't got to that yet. But the city of Jerusalem builds a wall around itself to keep things out. And that's what walls are for, right? Uh, you, we build fences to keep the dog in. Uh, but a lot of times, if you don't have a dog, that fence is there to keep the dogs out. This is, that's the whole idea. And so when we live in a place that's dark around us, it's very easy to develop a posture of protection, of let's keep that out. Let's keep the things that are dangerous far from us. And let's be safe. Unless we controlled. And then when Jesus comes back, he'll be impressed at how safe and in control we are. The problem is, when you read the Bible, Jesus never says, make sure you're really safe, and you're really in control, and you have really big walls. And make sure you have lots of buffers so you don't get anywhere near people who actually need to hear about me. That's a temptation, isn't it? And I'm not, I'm not even accusing other people. I'm saying, on days when I'm tired, on, when I'm raising my kids in this community, when, I, you know, when I'm letting them watch the things that come on TV, sometimes I just want to build a wall. That's, that's, I'm not saying someone else. I'm saying me. All right? Like sometimes I'd rather just not deal with it. I'd rather just pretend that the, that lost culture that we live in isn't there. I want to pretend that I don't have to talk to the hippies. You know, we're just going to, yeah, we see them. They're not wearing shoes. That's all right. <laughs> this is a public store. You're supposed to wear shoes. Okay, you're right. Th- that's a temptation. And what Jesus calls us to, when he actually says what it is to follow me, it isn't to protect yourself. It isn't to put up a guard and make sure that you don't have to interact with anything that's unclean. Because Jesus was constantly interacting with dangerous situations. He was becoming religiously or ceremonially unclean all the time. He was touching people who were sick. He was letting women who were sick, one of them touched his clothing. He actually sat down at a well with a woman that had been married multiple times and was now cohabitating with someone. Which in our culture is not a big deal. But in a religious culture, that is. And in the Jewish religious area, it was kind of a partially Jewish area that Jesus was living in. Jesus sits down with this woman and people would have started talking about Jesus in a negative way. And sometimes we go, well, we need to make sure that we're perfect and we don't make any mistakes because we might be the only Jesus that someone ever sees. It's, some kind of, it's, like, a, 
a weird like manipulation of ourselves to where we let ourselves off the hook for engaging anything outside of our little boundary. Because if you really think about it, just for a second, I say this all the time, if you're the only Jesus that someone ever sees, that's hugely depressing. Because I am so far from actual Jesus. Right? And so are you. Like we, I would rather you meet the actual Jesus. Like I don't want you to be a big fan of the Grove. I want you to be a big fan of actual Jesus. The Grove might be fantastic. It pales in comparison to how fantastic Jesus is. So if I'm interacting with someone and, and I've got this attitude of I need to be, you know, so just holy or some, I don't know, some kind of weird image of holy that I have, this sacred religiosity, then what I'm actually doing is changing my posture towards them and changing my posture towards God. If I'm trying to protect myself, then I've probably got the issue of not trusting in God's own promised protection and provision for me. But these people who live in Tyre and Sidon, if Jesus would have went and spoke to them, they would have repented. Just straight up, religiously, crazily repented. Here's the advantage of living in a place like Tyre and Sidon. And we don't live in a place like Sodom. We don't live in a place that's incredibly evil. Right? Like we, aren't, we don't see ritualistic sacrifices at the courthouse. Our most evil thing is like naked bike rides. Alright? <laughs> and you laugh about it. But <laughs> so do I. It's, you all are nutty. <laughs> when I tell my family on the East Coast that y'all do that, they're like, how does that work physiologically? Like, just we don't... Do they have bigger seats? Or Okay. It just doesn't, right? It doesn't make sense. And you all still do this. But you all, all of you Oregon natives, I know you all do this. <laughs> but when we, when we live in a place that's so far from God, like so far from God, there becomes a certain advantage to having conversations in that culture. Let me give a quick example. I worked with a youth group in Georgia. I went to school in Georgia, in Tacoa, almost South Carolina. Uh, just a beautiful place. I never met someone that didn't go to church. Ever. And I grew up in Ontario, in Canada, which it, it makes Oregon look conservative, where I'm from. All right? Uh, we, Canada is, especially that part of Canada, is extremely liberal. Um, and when I go down there, we, we decided, we had this small youth group. I worked in a small campus church. And I was volunteering, leading this youth group, and we had a, a water skiing day. We were going to borrow this boat, and we said, let's invite your friends. And they're like, all right. And I'm like, especially your friends that like, don't go to church. And no joke, they said, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, like on Sundays, they don't go to church. And they're like, what? They just they had no concept. Like, it's Sunday morning. Where else do you go? Like, what else would you do? And, and I'm like, well, you know your friend that you were telling me deals drugs in the Walmart parking lot? Oh, he goes to this church. Okay. <laughs> like, and, and, and no, like, no, no concept of that doesn't match. All right? That's an incredibly challenging place to reach people. Because it's not just telling them, because they've been worn down by the gospel. Does that make sense? 
Like if you have pastors in the Deep South who are actually trying to help people's lives be transformed by the gospel, they're fighting generational racism, generational religiosity, uh, just generational church attendance. You know what I mean? That's, it's an incredibly hard place to minister. Here in the Pacific Northwest, I've had friends who find out I'm a pastor and they ask me what religion I'm a pastor in. And I struggle because nobody asked me that before. <laughs> you go and do something kind for someone, like with your church group, or we do something positive in the community, and people are like, why are you doing this? Like, we're with a church. Well, I've heard of them on TV, but I don't know any of those. My son was at camp, and one of his friends who comes from an unreligious background, an unchurched background, he wanted to start coming to church. He told LJ, and he said, how much does it cost? How do I sign up? Right? But just no concept. When I was a youth pastor on the south end of town, I had a kid uh, ask me uh, how, like, how much the government pays me because he thought I was a government social worker that ran a program for kids to stay off the streets on Wednesday. And for that kid, that's what he needed. I told him, well, I work in that church next door because we met in an outbuilding from the church. And he goes, there's a church next door? He had, like, gone by it. He's 15, 16 years old. He lives in the town. Just no concept. I said, yeah, I have an office. <laughs> Why would you have an office, <laughs> right? It just, we live in an area where, like, while most of the country is fighting over Christmas and stuff like that, our part of the nation has no idea that Jesus has something to do with Christmas and Easter. It's incredible. And so when we're, which I think this becomes an easy place to be a Christian in. Because your Christianity is in stark contrast to the world around you. If you follow Jesus, you're weird, you're strange, and people don't understand the things you're doing. In our world. That's just the way it is. We did, youth groups do a thing called See You at the Pole. We all stand around a flagpole and pray. Uh, I don't know if they still do it. Uh, my youth group kids stopped doing it. They thought it was a bit showy and pharisaical. Kind of had to agree with them. When I was in high school, I never did it because I was the only Christian I could find in my high school. I found one other. I actually started a Christian club in my high school. There were two of us. Uh, this is my claim to fame. This is why I'm awesome. My Sunday school teacher would come in. She was a grandma. And, uh, and she would bring her friend, and we would sing hymns a cappella at Christian Club. Me, another guy, two grandmas. All right? <laughs> so this is the culture I grew up in. So I go into Christian Club at South Albany High School here, ready to do a small group Bible study with the four kids. Like 30 kids show up. I blew up at them. I was like, what is wrong with you? Go do something, right? They never invite me back. But... Um, if, if we live in an area, so when I would go to Christian Club, and that's what we called it because we, no, we weren't that cool, I would go to Christian Club and my friends would say to me, and I grew up in an area much like this, they would say, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm going to Christian Club. What on earth is a Christian Club? And I was like, well, it's me and another Christian and we sing hymns. <laughs> when I said it out loud, it sounds lame, doesn't it? But, uh, but that's, what, that's all we knew what to do, you know? And so we were like, well, we get together, we pray together. This is what we, we thought, this is what Christians should do. This is what Jesus would probably do, hang out and pray and sing songs worshiping God. Really slow old lady songs worshiping God, right? It was incredible. But um, they were just, like, 
it wasn't like, oh, that's fine, or oh, you're a goody-goody, or oh, something. It was seriously a look of, I have no idea what you're talking about. And when we're able to start from that blank place, when we're able to say, we, okay, if God works through us in this place, tire and side on, if that's where we are, if that's where we're living, then we're starting at zero. We're not starting with some kind of preconceived notions, which creates an incredible challenge. Because you have to like tear down what people thought. And we have a bit of that. Because of mass media, we have to deal with, you know, Westboro Baptist stuff. We have to deal with, you know, this televangelist fell or had moral failure and stuff like that because it's on the news. So we have to explain a bit of that, that Christians are human, you know, and we're not all, we're not Jesus. But we want to tell you about Jesus. We have this incredible opportunity in our culture. And so Jesus gives this incredible downer to say, if you see yourself as religious, but your posture is resisting the work of God, judgment day is going to be pretty terrible for you. And for some of us, maybe you've been religious long enough that you've learned to resist God. Meaning, you know the things the scripture teaches, but you also know the cost of it. And so you talk your way out of it. This, Jesus says, will be more painful on Judgment Day than living in Tyre and Sidon and Sodom. It'll be worse. But if we're able to move our posture out of that, if we're able to say, we're going to engage with what God is doing, we're going to move with where Jesus is moving, which I think isn't as hard of a a shift as we think, to just say, I'm going to read my scripture and I'm going to do what it says. Like when Jesus says, preach good news to the poor, I'm actually going to. I'm going to tell people good news around me. When Jesus says, share when Jesus says give, when Jesus says worship, I'm actually going to. I'm a terrible singer and I'm going to sing. It makes me uncomfortable when people hear me, so I sit at the front. Right? But I'm going to do this because I'm going to engage God because to resist God it doesn't hurt God but it affects me in a way that's unbearable. And then we move out into our Tyre and Sidon and our Sodom into our community. And we have this incredible opportunity. In this scripture of condemnation, Jesus puts this light that says, if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. If we look at the lost around us and we don't develop this protection attitude, but we develop this let's see what Jesus can do among you attitude. We will see repentance. We will see revival. We will see people coming to know Jesus. We will see a whole community changed. That's what you see. That's what Jesus says. And so the response to this isn't like how do we, how do we what do we do, what do we do? It's a posture response. It's an inner look or a consideration of yourself. Like, it, do you have pride in your religiosity? Or do you have humility in your repentance? 
Because you know how far away you are from Jesus. How much you have to grow in Christ-likeness. That's what I mean. Are you proud to be a Christian? And proud that you're part of this thing? Are you humble because you know the only difference between you and a person who's wildly lost is someone who one day told you about Jesus? There's no huge difference. Just at some point, someone shared the good news with you that Jesus would love to forgive your sins, would love for you to be a follower of him, would love to lead your life in what he calls the most abundant life. If someone didn't tell you, you're that guy. That's the big difference. It's not that they're a hippie and they don't wear shoes. It's that nobody's bothered to talk to them because they're not wearing shoes. (laughs) And the challenge of Jesus is, what is your posture towards the people around you? And that posture will reveal your heart towards God. And so we don't work on doing more. We work on allowing our hearts to be open to God and allowing God to soften our hearts in a way that makes us a part of his redemptive movement in our city, in the Pacific Northwest, in the greatest, easiest place in America to tell people about Jesus.